You're listening to Historical AF, or if you cuss like we do, Historical As Fuck. This is your museum-loving historian, Kina. And I'm your amazing librarian, Ashley. We're here to deliver the funny, weird, spooky, morbid, and random historical nuggets you never knew you needed. Welcome to episode seven. Oh my gosh, we're getting so close to double digits. I'm super pumped. First, our topic this week is museums, if you couldn't tell from Kina's intro. (laughs) It was foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. I'm going to say real quick, we got featured in Fangirl Nation magazine this week. Oh my gosh, I think my heart stopped for like a split second. I'm not going to lie. I grinned like an idiot for like four <laughs> hours. I posted it on every social media platform for myself and the podcast that I could. You would have thought I won like a fucking Oscar. <laughs> That's what it felt like. I was it really felt like it. Yes. If you guys don't follow or look at Girl Nation magazine, y'all definitely should. They're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that. Wonderful. And we are so grateful. There were definitely some tears like Miss America waving at the face, <laughs> like, oh, I've arrived. So for the people who are here from that article who found us that way, thank you. And please tell your family and friends and we love you. Yes, we do love you so much. Yes. <sighs> so, yeah. How was your week besides that? Really good. So this past weekend, I got to check some stuff off my bucket list. I'm really excited. Oh, yeah. Like? I went to the zoo and I fed a giraffe. <gasps> and his name, his name was Alan, and he was beautiful. What his name was Alan? Alan. <laughs> Animals with human names are one of my favorite things, and dogs with Mine jobs. too. And it was so funny because it's mostly like kids, right, and babies. Like I'm gonna feed the giraffe, and then my husband's over like, kids. he's just like, no, my wife's gonna do it. And he paid for the ticket, and he's like, here you go, babe. I was like a child. <laughs> they're describing how to feed a giraffe, and they're like, okay, you're gonna get three lettuce leaves. And you're going to stand where the little footprints are, like I'm a child, right? And then they're like, it's basically a vending machine, right? So you're going to put your arm out, it's going to grab it, and then you're done. It's like a transaction in a vending machine. And I was like, I'm 34 years old, dude. You don't have to talk to me like the toddler you just talked to. Right? Probably got that script in his head. Bless him. It was magical, magical. And then we went to the Buckhorn Saloon and Museum in San Antonio, and... Real quick, this place, it was a saloon in the early 19th century. And if you couldn't afford beer, you could trade antlers for a beer. So they have collected the world's largest collection of horns in the world. And then also the wife was like, hold my beer. If you give me a rattlesnake rattle, I'll give you beer. So then she was making art out of rattlesnake rattles. Holy shit. What? What a boss. Also genius. She's probably like, fuck these rattlesnakes. Yeah, let's you kill them and then I'll just make something out of them and you get a beer. Everybody wins. I'm just going to drink water. I don't want to get that close to a rattlesnake. Yeah, it was super cool. Although there's a moment where I'm like surrounded with like a giraffe and a hippo and, you know, an otter and a seal and everything's dead on a wall. And I was like, I'm surrounded by everything I love. That video you posted had me (laughs) laughing so hard because I saw it without the sound first. And I was like, hey, that's all the things that Kina loves. And then I listened to it. And you're like, everything (laughs) I love is dead. I was like, awesome. And then the end is my husband cackling. Yes. Hilarious. My eyeballs were like, this is fascinating, yet really sad. So this place is called Buckhorn? Buckhorn Saloon and Museum. And as the Texas Ranger Museum attached to it, 
and we're going through it right and then we walk into the it said restrooms this way so we're like oh let's go to the restroom and then it was an entire western like city set up and we're like that was unexpected i was <laughs> like, expecting had, you to say like there was a cut out of like chuck norris or something <laughs> no they had a replica of the bonnie and clyde car and like oh. kind of stuff. it was really cool Highly huh. recommend if you're in san antonio it's on the river walk so there's no excuse if you're in okay. san antonio you're going to the river walk so go i have to go it was so cool. And then I got tickets to see Hamilton this week. <laughs> uh, you are living your best life this week, and I am so happy. I am. I am. I'm just going to live it through you. I'm so excited. They're going to be in Austin, and uh, I love it. I'm pretty sure I sang it in episode four, so it's no oh, surprise yeah. that I like it. So I think I love it because it's like hip-hop. You know, like a lot of it's like hip hop rap. And then yeah. also it's pretty historically accurate, which, you know, your girl appreciate. Oh, yes. Yes. Definitely. Speaking of which, we both discovered historical roasts on Netflix and we've both been texting each other and just dying. Oh, my God. It's, it's so funny. Yesterday was such a shit show for me. And like <laughs> by by like seven last night, I was like, screw it. I'm laying in bed. I'm not moving. And I turned that on and I sat here and cackled. Like, just cracked up. It was so good. So good. Like, there's a few, like, modern jokes on there. But for the most part, they've really kept with what was really happening. Like, even yeah. the dark stuff, like Mary Todd being in a, you know, sanitarium. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, they definitely touched on that and her love of drugs. And I had texted Kina about how they had someone on there playing Harriet Tubman. And she was like... 100% I mean I Harriet Tubman was a boss ass bitch but then the person playing her last night and the jokes that were written for her, like oh my god they were so on point oh they're so good so good it was awesome I can't wait to finish watching more of it later I don't think we mentioned it but it's the roast of Abraham Lincoln that's, that's yes, why Mary sorry. Todd and Harry Tubman I forgot to mention that yeah sorry yeah yeah and the guy from Full House he's playing Bob Saget Bob Saget I keep forgetting his name and, and then, then uh John Stamos was John Wilkes Booth. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, my God. They, It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. It was really good. Highly recommend. Yeah. So everyone needs to watch that because, yeah, it is pretty historically accurate. So I really like it. I know there's one on Cleopatra that I need to watch, but we didn't. I cannot it. wait to get to that one. Oh, it's so good. So how was your week? Oh, my week was a Murphy's Law kind of week. Anything that could go wrong did or will. Like yesterday, I had an asthma attack at the gym and then I headbutted my car in the Kroger parking lot. I don't know what my life is, but whatever. I'm alive. <laughs> Rainbows and butterflies over there. Rainbows. <laughs> yes, I bought myself a fishing pole today. I'm going to do the most like southern thing ever and just go fishing one day and trying new recipes. I don't know. Like I, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. <laughs> Isn't Arkansas, like, flooded right now? It is. Oh, my gosh. The rivers, come, the Arkansas River and all of its, like, offshoots and tributaries and all that are, like, insanely flooded. Like, I was actually going to go fishing on this little, it's a pond, but it's called a lake here in town. But it shares a road with the Saline River, and I'm not sure. I need to check. I think the Saline is also flooded. So it may not even be like a differentiation between the river and the pond right now. So I need to figure out where I can go fishing. And it's supposed to, it's actually just starting to storm here since we're doing this on Wednesday. And because it always fucking storms when we're getting ready to (laughs) 
record. I don't know what that is, but it it's a thing. Yeah, so I'm thinking that the ponds and lakes are also going to flood on top of the rivers already flooding. So we will see. Yeah. I heard another eight inches in the Arkansas is what it's expected. They're doing like evacuations. I mean, it's crazy. I haven't seen yes. this kind of evacuation in years. Yeah, the uh, pavilion down by the Clinton Library in the River Market area in Little Rock is currently the water is up to the like the bottom of the roof of the pavilion. I saw that. And then I also saw that all the snakes are taking cover, like refuge. So there's snakes everywhere over by yes. the library. Yes, there are snakes everywhere. There was a beaver. All, also, God bless the comment section that I saw this in. I saw a picture of a beaver <laughs> and some beautiful woman commented and said, but where is that bear going? Oh. <laughs> and I was, I was so people can't see my face but I was so fucking tickled like I was just like ah, she said bear like I don't know okay I'm relieved because I thought Beaver and Clinton was going to go a different direction but that's Yikes. a lot funnier <laughs> no that's that's later in my stories no <laughs> although yes there was also the comment of oh imagine a snake in the Clinton library got shut up shut the hell up yeah. Sit down. Sit all the way down. But anyway, whatever. Comment <laughs> sections. I typically don't read them, but I don't know why I felt inclined. But I, I'm thankful I did because I got to see a woman think that a beaver was a bear. But we've had a lot of bear sightings in Arkansas this week. Like there was one in Hope, I think, either Hope or Prescott, that was eluding law enforcement for like five hours. It was a little bear. The last one, I think, tried to get into, like, firehouse subs or something. I love those stories. Like, bear swimming in pool, bear on the trampoline. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know why those fascinate me. Like, that's my favorite thing about living in the South, but also my most hated thing is, like, how much wildlife we deal with. Because, like, it's really cool to have the opportunities to, like, see that stuff and sometimes see it in person at a safe distance, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you don't want to, like, accidentally walk up on a bear or a mountain lion or a snake i walked up on a lizard the other day that was probably the length of my hand and i screamed like a little girl because i don't like lizards but yeah it's funny i love lizards i've owned several in my life and i just love them but i cannot do snakes i'm terrified and growing up in the ozarks if you, everywhere you go there's a snake so if you're yep. at the river there's a snake if you're at the lake you have to watch out for snakes if you just go outside to your car there's a damn snake yep so the other day we went for a walk oh my god with my puppies and there was like a steep hill and i'm like an old lady so i let my dog go because he stays near us he doesn't go up so i could like grandma my way down the steep hill and then he went and stood by zeke but he was looking over the edge and just clumsily derped over the edge into the river <laughs> and I immediately was like oh my god my baby and then my second thought was like there's a snake in there <laughs> so oh, I made Zeke go get him thought. nice yeah I was like can you go get him yes it was it was a thing but it was so funny because he was okay and then Zeke's like let's move him over here it's, it was deeper over there so Murray's just like splashing like he can swim if he has to he does not like it so he was it was a traumatic day for him. <laughs> Bless his little derpy heart. He's probably like, God damn it, mom. Right. I almost right died. And then run away to a giraffe. <laughs> it was an adventure. But yeah, that was the first thing that popped in my head. Is like, yeah, there's definitely snakes in there. And But I got to break that habit of there's somewhere. There's one here. I know it. I don't know, man. 
every time my dad and I go fishing in the summer, we have at least one snake that tries to get in the boat with us. Oh, and my, my dad always tells me, if it gets in the boat, don't bail out. And I'm like, why would I bail out? There's more snakes out there. <laughs> I may scream like a girl, but I'm not getting out of the boat in the middle of the lake or the river. You yeah. see that YouTube video of the lady, a snake falls from a tree into their canoe. So she jumps out of it. And then there's an alligator in the river. And she's like, oh, my God. Oh my god, that is like the perfect representation of out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, and the husband's just laughing. I'm like, that's my life right there. That is yep, a yep. visual of what would happen. Yeah, but my, my sister's dad is a river guide, and he'd always be like, yeah, snakes just drop out of those trees all the time. And like, what, do you, what do you mean all the time? <laughs> Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, nope. It's going to be a big no for me. Yeah, and so I'm really excited about our topic today we want to get started absolutely yes i am ready to scream about facts and curse and bring shame upon my family let's do this <laughs> oh random that's me i don't remember what word i gave you you gave me legs legs Which, i have to say was challenging Yes, but it was actually very rewarding because I really had to work for it, and it's uh, <laughs> really excited. That's about how what? I felt about pineapple. <laughs> yeah, at first I was like, "How am I going to do that?" And I first thought maybe like, Greek statues legs, you know. But then I was like, "That's too easy." So we're gonna bring it back to Texas, y'all. Woohoo! Yeehaw! <laughs> you are the yee to my haw. All right, so Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana who is the self-proclaimed Napoleon of the West. So just imagine the kind of person you are that's like, call me the Napoleon. Nope. What is that like? Mean Girls, like, stop trying to make that happen. It's not never going to happen. (laughs) So Santa Ana was born in Jalapa in the Mexican state of Veracruz. He entered the Spanish military service at either 15 or 16. I actually saw both ages. But he initially stayed in the Royalist forces during the fight for independence from Spain but joined the popular side in 1821, and he became a pattern of assisting the political figure into power and then turning against him based on his own, you know, what worked for him better. Okay. Santa Ana gained great popularity by his actions in resisting the Spanish effort to regain control of Mexico in 1828, and then he was elected president in 1833, turning his office into a dictatorship the following year. So, boo. His efforts to increase central government powers did much to provoke the unrest of old Tejas, home to many American expatriates. In 1835, the Texas Revolution erupted, and Santa Ana became a prime villain of Texas history because of his actions at the Alamo and at Goliad. Sam Houston defeated the Mexican army under Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto and 1836, assuring Texas independence. Woo! <laughs> Which is funny, because uh, in all two of my stories this week, I've realized I have had a connection to Texas all along, and I'll explain that in our other episode. Awesome. <laughs> Extra AF. So, two years later, after the 1836 Battle of the Alamo, Santa Ana led a makeshift army against the French forces who had invaded Veracruz. And what has been called the Pastry War. Yum. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, it just makes me think of croissants and croissants. That's what I was about to hungry. say. Yes. Oh, croissants. <sighs> I need some pastries. All right. So after the general was severely wounded by a grape shot fired from a French cannon, doctors were forced to amputate his leg, which Santa Ana buried at his Veracruz hacienda. After he once again assumed the presidency in 1842, Santa Ana exhumed his shriveled leg and paraded it in Mexico City in an ornate coach and buried it beneath the cemetery monument in an elaborate state funeral that included cannons, poetry, and lofty orations. I would use my leg as, like, a cane, even if I didn't need a cane. <laughs> like, my foot would be the handle. <laughs> Man, this guy is so extra. Like, Yes, I appreciate I just, it. I just can't. All right, so his severed leg didn't remain in the ground for long, however. In 1844, the public opinion turned on the president, and writers tore down his statues and dug up his leg. The mob tied the severed appendage to a rope and dragged it through the streets of Mexico while shouting, death to the cripple. Yikes. Big yikes. Yeah, this is escalating very quickly. Damn, you, like, have to really hate someone to be like, I'm gonna dig your leg up, bitch. Like, what? Why not? You had to tear down the statues first, too. That's a lot of hatred. That's Yeah, that's, that's a lot, a of, lot anger. of work. It yeah. is. That makes me tired. I know. I'm already tired thinking of it. All right. So during the 1847 Battle of Cerro Gordo in the Mexican-American War, the 4th Illinois Infantry surprised Sedana, who fled without something quite important, his prosthetic cork and wooden lead. Leg. Okay. The Illinois soldiers seized the leg as a trophy piece that they brought back to their home state where it toured at county fairs before falling into the possession of the Illinois State Military Museum where it remains today. This is where the museum actually comes in. This leg has traveled more than I have. (laughs) I went deep. Leg was hard, okay? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the Mexican government's repeated request to take back St. Anna's fake limb have been denied. Now for the really fun part. Some Texans expect Illinois to relinquish it. A museum at San Jacinto Battlefield where he was captured and forced to give up claim to Texas has petitioned the White House to get the leg moved there. I mean, sounds fair, right? Okay. Of course. The students at St. Mary's University in San Antonio think they should get the leg back so they can give it back to Mexico. I think I agree with them. I mean, it sounds fair. a good point there (laughs) there are other opinions (laughs) the dallas morning news warned (laughs) illinoisians is that a word i don't know illinois now texans are determined and we don't give up easily so this has turned into a thing so flip side the illinois opinion (laughs) (laughs) they said in any case we can't imagine why the texans imagine they have claim at san jacinto san ana still had his legs which he was born with, so also very fair point. Texans didn't inflict the injury that necessitated the replacement, also fair point, and Texans didn't capture it or preserve it for 169 years. As we know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, also very fair point. Yes. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. Their requests have gotten nowhere with the legs' faithful guardians answering no every time they ask. (laughs) (laughs) The Lieutenant Colonel Brad Layton, Public Affairs Director of the Illinois Department of Military Affairs, told the State Journal 
Register of Springfield. We paid for that leg with Illinois blood. We're not giving it up. So he also said, if Texas wants something from Illinois, we have some things we might be willing to spare. An Arctic day in February, say, or a corrupt alderman. And we're willing to offer a compromise on saying to Anna's leg. It can go to Texas anytime it walks there. Shots fired. Burn! my drop! Damn. Oh my gosh, I love that horn thing and I <laughs> imitate it way too often and Terry makes fun of me. Oh man, yeah, so there's my story. My god, that was wonderful. You did so good. <laughs> I, yeah, I gave... Okay, look, I, like, have so much trouble coming up with a random word. So, yeah, that just popped in my head, and I was like, man, if anyone can knock it out of the park, it's Kina. I'm so excited that I found that, because I didn't know it was a thing. And, you know, listen, like, it's a big thing right now of museums wanting things back. So there's a lot of lawsuits going around around the world, um, yep. especially, like, Egypt wanting their artifacts back. Yeah. Um, so I thought this was very relevant. <laughs> yes, I love it. That's awesome. Oh, man. I'd never heard of that, but... You know, I'd heard of him i just didn't know that he had a i mean truth i was looking for peg legs like pirates first and then this yes came up and i was like oh this is better yes i like this <laughs> even better man if i had a dollar for every time i've changed a topic in the middle of researching <laughs> i would be rich oh yeah happens a lot that needs to be a patreon tier just getting paid <laughs> just for changing topics oh man all okay. right you want to roll see what you do sure morbid morbid Okay. Also, I have to do, while I'm finding my morbid notes, I have to do a small, small retraction from last week's episode because I told Terry I would. Because of the vodka last week, I made a reference to Bill and Ted, but then I made the Wayne's World noise. (laughs) Terry came in from mowing and was like, I have a retraction for you. Oh, that's beautiful. It was like being sassy pants about it. And I was just like, I know as soon as I did it, I knew I was wrong, but I wasn't going back. But no. So there's my retraction. I'm drinking coffee instead of alcohol this this episode. That way I maybe won't have to have 50 retractions. And if we scared you with my height retraction last week, sorry, not sorry. Also, it could have been worse because there was actually like white noise before that noise at first. But I was like, yeah, that might be too much. Yeah, that scared the shit out of both of us. And we knew it was coming. (laughs) So we dialed it down. But anyway, so morbid. I got morbid AF this week. And I'm going to talk just really briefly about the Museum of Death in New Orleans. Oh, my gosh. I've heard of that. Look, I want to go here so bad. Like, Uh legitimately, it's on my list for a girl's trip. Like, me, you, Lana, Amy. Like, I I need all these people. We have to go. I really want to go. So this, like I said, this museum's in New Orleans. But it is the second of these museums. The first one was built in California and Los Angeles, which our Patreon shout out that we'll have later. She actually lives out there and I keep like wanting to go stay with her because she is a friend and and former roommate that I want to go stay with her so I can go to the Museum of Death out there. But the one in New Orleans was built 20 years after the original museum was built. So in 1950, wow, I can't words, 1995, founders J.D. Healy and Catherine Schultz brought the collection of like body bags, autopsy videos, pieces of taxidermy, skeletons, letters and pictures from serial killers, other death themed things. It brought all that from California to the French Quarter in New Orleans. Oh, wow. 
So the exhibits, which can be super graphic, are, they say they're not for faint of heart or weak stomachs. Okay, so there's no age restriction. So, like, you can take kids to this, but if you take your kids to this, I'm going to judge you for it. <laughs> um, and their their website says, we all die, which is their reasoning for not having an age restriction. But they recommend that caution and consideration are urged. And, like, realistically, I don't want to listen to a baby cry while I'm, like, reading about, like, the Black Dahlia or something like that. So, anyway... This place apparently is so gruesome that people have a habit of fainting oh, wow. while there. They call this, where is it? It's called a falling down ovation. And if you <laughs> pass out, it's called, I passed out. It, you get a t-shirt that says, for free, I passed out at the Museum of Death and lived to talk about it. Oh, I mean, I kind of want that shirt, though. Okay, look, I have syncope. <laughs> I just pass out if I forget to eat. Like, I could just go in there and not even be horrified by the museum stuff. Just be like, well, chronic illness, pass out and get a shirt. So I'm like really banking on that because I want one. Like, I really want one, but I don't, I also don't want to be like, look, I'm a punk bitch and can't like stomach looking at this stuff. So I don't know. I'm weird about it. I didn't write this in here, but I wanted to mention some of the stuff that they have here, they also have replicas of at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Branson, Missouri. Oh, like, I've been there. Yes. Oh, my God. I love that place. And I know they have the crime scene photos of the Black Dahlia and stuff like that. But this is just like exclusively death stuff. So here's some of the stuff they have on display. So they have Dr. Kevorkian's Suicide Machines. Which I needed to look that up because I thought that it was like a lethal injection type thing. I forgot that he actually had like machines for it. But anyway, a business card from Jack Ruby who killed Lee Harvey Oswald who killed President JFK. Oh, wow. Which is, that's a little, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon for me, but um, whatever. And there's letters from Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Kaczynski who's the Unabomber. There's paintings that were done by John Wayne Gacy, also known as the clown, you know, buried people under his floorboards. Side note, my dad grew up on the street that John Wayne Gacy lived, and he says he remembered him driving by in his little truck thing in the area where he hunted boys. So, yeah, that's my that's my little claim to serial killer isms. My mom said when she my grandmother was uh, diagnosed with cancer, they brought her back to Arkansas and they went up there. My mom went by his house and it was an empty lot at that point. She said it was creepy as shit. Okay, good. I was hoping they would tear that shit down. Yeah. I think uh, they built something on it now, but this was like, at least, it's, at least it's not like the original house. I don't know. I, I think don't know. they had to tear it down to get everything out of it. Good. Good. Cause fuck that. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Anyway, <laughs> it, there's memorabilia from the OJ Simpson trial, like um, hair that was at the crime scene and stuff like that. Oh, that's awful. Manson family photographs and like all kinds of other stuff. So there are videos, like snuff films. Like it's, it's, they said on their website that there are videos in which the death is not reenacted. It is actually happening on the screen, which is why they like warn people. So, I mean, they're actually not like purposely snuff films, like where you are purposely recording someone being killed. 
um, though they could be, but also, um, you know, like surveillance videos. I'm really fascinated by these, even though they make me really sick to my stomach. Like surveillance videos of nail salons where people have been shot and killed and stuff like that. Oh, man. It's really messed up to see. I try like really hard not to give views to that. So I think that's the one thing that I would really have an issue seeing in this museum. I am such an empathetic person. I don't know if I can handle this. I am. Like if I <laughs> listen heart. to a podcast that plays like recordings of a 911 call, I immediately start crying because I'm so empathetic. So I don't think I could watch these without getting really upset. So that might be my pass out and get a t-shirt moment. But then there are also exhibits on terrorism, cannibalism, and embalming, as well as a extensive collection of shrunken heads. Oh, man, I saw some shrunken heads this weekend. (laughs) Were those traded for beer, too? I don't think so. They were in the sideshow exhibit. Oh, that's right. I need to go Um, there. That sounds so cool. Yeah, they're really interesting. And it's kind of like you dissociate it from being a person just because it doesn't look like a person, I think. So it's very interesting how your brain really works, like how sometimes you can be okay with seeing one morbid thing, but then the next morbid thing, you're like, no, that's too much. But yes, a dead person's head. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so reading about this museum, you know, we're all going to think like, wow, that's really weird and really morbid and people are gross wanting to go there. But they say that the like the people who run it say that the goal of the library or not the library, the museums is that they want to educate people about death. And by educating them, they want to kind of remove the fear of dying and like make a, make you happy to be alive. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess, be thankful that you're not in these situations. And I think that it demystifies death a little bit and also makes you like it gives you situational awareness. Like you see how these people died can kind of go from there and make sure you're not in same situations and know that death is just a part of life. So, I mean, it's open seven days a week. I really, really want to go. I'm really fascinated by the murders and the true crime and all of that. So yeah, we should definitely go. I think it's really interesting. I'm thinking what it must be like to be a curator there, to be the person that has to, you know, curate exhibits for them. I I think it'd be very interesting because you got to like walk that line of being interesting and educational, but not too graphic or, you know, not uh, glorifying some yes. sort of death. I think yes. it would be a really interesting job, honestly. Yeah, I would absolutely, I feel like that would be my dream job right there is to curate something like that because it's, you know, like the Beetlejuice quote, I myself am strange and unusual, like I'm strange and unusual and I would love to be able to look at that, but I also think that not glorifying a crime and not shaming or blaming the victims is like such a tight line that you would have to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you said earlier, what they said, what their, what the way you described it, that must yeah. be their mission statement. And mm-hmm. usually, when you curate an exhibit, you like you have to follow your mission statement. So they're just yeah. pretty broad. So it would, it'd be really interesting to see how they could like fit all the objects they, you know, curate. Yeah. Yeah. And in the mission statement, they also say the founders want to spur the conversation around death because too often it doesn't come up until it is too late. So it's understandable. I think, I think as a whole, like psychologically, humans are in denial about a lot of things. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the unknown, you know, there's a lot of fear to that. And then having fear gives it more power. So I think, I think a lot of times, like you said, 
being more aware makes you more accepting that I mean we're all gonna die but yeah well and I mean like this didn't hit me till the other day I was driving down the highway and passed a funeral home and on their sign it said stop in for pre-arrangement stuff and at first I was like that's really fucked up to go in and be like hey I'm not dead yet but I need to make sure I got somewhere to go but that's actually a really good like pre-planning thing that I never really thought about Mm -hmm. and like when my brother-in-law died, I mean, it was very unexpected and we had to scramble to figure out what to do with him. And even though my dad's mom had a like plot and everything, there was still a ton of stuff that needed to be taken care of after she died and all that. So it doesn't, like they say, you know, it comes up when it's too late. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So I think that's why like every episode I've mentioned something funeral related because I just like it's always at the forefront to be prepared. Yeah, and I've seen both ways. My best friend passed away. It was when I was 20, I think. And it was so sudden. And nobody would expect somebody that young to die. And yeah. so I saw how hectic and crazy and horrible it was for a family. Because you're already in shock and you're already trying to deal with it. And then my dad knew he was dying. So my dad made the arrangement. So basically yeah. when he died, I just had to go in there and sign some papers. And he had already picked out everything he wanted. But it was still hard. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. Even having everything planned out for me it was still just a really terrible but shout out to the people that work at funeral homes because that man comforted me and walked me through everything because I was the one that signed the death certificate so he explained what that meant and uh, I had to ID him and all that stuff so he stayed with me the whole time so those people are like unsung heroes I think the people that have to deal with death are kind of unsung heroes because it's inevitable and somebody has to do it yeah, one of my best friends in high school, her dad uh, is the coroner in our hometown. And in school, he was the mortician for the local funeral home. And I mean, he, one of the guys I went to school with, he passed away. And when I went to the funeral home for the visitation, I mean, my friend's dad like held my hand and explained stuff because that was the first time I'd ever gone to like a visitation like that without my parents Mm -hmm. and I just I wasn't sure what to expect and because I'm so empathetic and I was pulling on everyone else's emotions like I just didn't know what to do so like having him there to explain stuff to me and even like the technical questions like how did you cover this or how did the process go this way and you know was my friend taken care of like that kind of thing he was so cool about explaining it. And that's what I've seen every time I've had to go to a a funeral home. Like they, they really are like the unsung heroes. They deserve so much more credit. But yeah, death is, uh, it's inevitable, but I think a lot of people like to, it's, I think it's the number one fear that most people have is death. I think it's the number one phobia, um, which is kind of scary if you think about it, because some phobias are irrational and you'll never see that. But if death is a phobia, yeah, you can't escape that. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that they're like kind of normalizing the conversation, kind of like we were talking about with like normalizing mental illness conversations and stuff like that. Like, I I think that this should be normalized, too. So it's something we can talk about. Like my parents, God bless them. They have everything prearranged. I know where all the papers are, but every time they've tried to be like, let's sit down and let us walk you through everything so you won't get blindsided. I like immediately start crying and I'm just like, I can't deal. So when it comes like I'm going to be a complete mess but they've like are already have it all taken care of so I just have to go in the safe and get the papers out and just go from there I have to say that's much much better <laughs> yes yes <laughs> much they better know I'll just it. lose my mind so yeah 
Um, honestly, my spooky segment is really close to your morbid section, so I think I'll do that next. (laughs) So, spooky. (laughs) I'm going to try to get through this. I think I've expressed my feelings on Zach Baggins before. Oh, God Uh, bless him. (laughs) He of the trap pants. (laughs) So, whatever your feelings are on Zach Baggins or ghosts in general, there's no denying that his collection of objects are pretty damn impressive. So I'm going to talk about his haunted museum in Las Vegas. Somewhere else I want to go. We almost went on our honeymoon, but we didn't want to um, spend that much money. It's really expensive. I have yeah. the prices down below, but yeah, Sweet. it's a little, a little, little too much for me. I'm cheap again. No judgment. <laughs> thrifty, thrifty. <laughs> All right. So they say whatever your fear is, he has something on display that will freak you out got a lot of allegedly haunted objects and fans of ghost adventures might recognize a few of them and i've named some of the big ones here so the original staircase from the demon house which i believe is on netflix now his documentary i believe it is i've watched it twice i haven't seen it yet Uh, oh my god it's so entertaining is it funny? I thought it would be, like, really demon-y, so I was like, eh, don't do No, me. it's not. It's not. Like, literally, I'm sorry, guys, this is a little bit of a spoiler. There's literally only, like, one legit demon moment that freaked me out, and it's in, like, the last ten minutes of the movie. Oh, okay. All right, that's not too bad, then. Yeah, no, you should definitely watch it, because, I mean, it's, like, it's the Baggins at his, like, most wonderful. Ooh, but Talk okay. about extra. This man. Gosh, I, love him. I love him so much. <laughs> All right, so the original staircase from the Indiana Demon House is actually at this museum. And it's notorious for its powerful paranormal activity before it was demolished in 2014. So the wooden banister and the creaky steps now stand in a dimly lit corner, resting on a blanket of dirt from the location. So following its installation, a group of construction workers actually walked off the job and refused to come back. So that's kind of cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that would definitely sell some tickets. Were they like working on the Demon House exhibit or were they just like working on the museum? Uh, They were just installing it. Okay. So I guess he hired them to put it back together in that corner. Okay. I'm assuming most things like that you have to dismantle very carefully and then put it back together. So I'm assuming they were just putting it back together. Okay, cool. So next there is the Dybbuk box that claims to be or he claims to be the most haunted object in the world. So they did that fucking live special on Travel <laughs> Channel yeah. to not open the Divic box. I may have, after that special, tweeted at Zach Bagans and offered to let him fly me out to Vegas to open the Divic box. I would 100% open that shit because I'm a spooky bitch. <sighs> yeah, that but was yes. a very long special for nothing to happen. Sadly, he did not get back to me on my offer. Come on, Baggins. Yeah, come on, Baggins. I will definitely come open your box. (laughs) But anyway. All right, so the Dybbuk box is a vintage wine cabinet that actually inspired the movie The Possession. And it's said to house a malicious spirit. Shortly after its arrival, mysterious protruding holes began to appear in the walls around the artifact, as if something was trying to break out from within the exhibit. A Las Vegas marketing executive and Baggins both witnessed a black-cloaked figure passing through the exhibit's closed doors during a private tour. And this has been seen by multiple guests and staff as well. 
Okay. Oh, I'm gonna start calling him Bagginses, like Lord of the Rings. is yes. <laughs> Uh, he's also in possession of the Bella Lugosi cursed mirror. So if you know, if it sounds familiar, you don't know who that guy is. He was in the 1931 film Dracula, like nope. the original creepy Dracula guy. All right. So the mirror was in his house, and in 1982, a man who was living in that house was murdered very brutally. I, I read details. It was a mob hit. Like we're talking like nails to the kneecaps, kind of horrific death. Yeah, super fucked yeah. up. No, 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 no. Anyway, so he was murdered inside the house, and the mirror was the only witness to the crime, and the killer was never found. Ooh, spooky. You gotta think about it. Like, a lot of times the mirror is the only witness to a crime, so why is it only this mirror that people are, like, losing their shit over? Because it's in Zach Bagans' museum. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Lugosi was allegedly into the occult, and he might have used this mirror for some rituals, which... I read a bunch of stuff. People were like, we can't really figure out what rituals he was doing. So it's kind of a urban and agent. Substantiated uh, claim. Yeah. So they believe that if Bella had left any kind of portal open, all the energy from the murder looking into this or the murderer looking into this mirror and the energy from the horrific death may have been trapped. So this is the idea. So when looking into the mirror, a former owner of it saw a hand reaching out to get her, and then she felt teeth marks against her neck as a shadowy figure appeared. Nope. That's also a big note for me. And I'm assuming the whole neck biting is because he was Dracula, but... um, Oh. I I mean, I did read that Lugosi was typecasted as, like, Dracula the rest of his life, so I guess that would kind of make sense, but... He was also pissed off about being typecasted. So why would he still be Dracula when he's dead if he's pissed off about being typecasted? Yeah, that would that's very weird. Hypocrite. All right. Don't come after me, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just don't look in any mirrors the rest of the day. It's fine. I shit talk so many ghosts. I don't know how I... Real talk. A <laughs> few more hauntings. All right. So she also says that when she slept in the room with the mirror, she had a nightmare and woke up with scratches all over her body. So that's also a big hard pass for me. One guest, he claimed, looked into the Bella Lugosi's haunted mirror housed inside the museum behind the black curtain, which they keep it behind a curtain for dramatic effect, I'm assuming. Of course. course. And his eyes began to bleed. At that point, the museum guys allegedly began lighting sage, which sage is cool and all, but so is first aid. Yeah. Yeah. Am I wrong? (laughs) I mean, like, get the homies some gauze or something. (laughs) All right. So another big one which I'm going to tread very lightly here because I don't fuck with dolls. But they have Peggy the doll. Ugh. Oh, man. Okay, so Peggy the doll, which was obtained from its previous owner, Jane Harris in England, was featured on an episode of Deadly Possessions. The doll has a long and storied paranormal history. It's said to be one of the most haunted and dangerous dolls in the world. It's believed that Peggy is possessed by the spirit of a woman born in 1946 in London's Holland Park who died of chest-related condition, possibly asthma. And psychics have speculated that the woman could be of Jewish descent and have ties to the Holocaust. So the, they may never know the exact identity of the entity inhabiting the doll, but her effects on people have been well documented. It's also believed that in addition to causing violent migraines and severe chest pains, the entity can affect a person's dreams and predict tragedies. Back in 2015, a video of Peggy hit YouTube, and it's been reported that 80 people who watched it suffered from chest pains, nausea, and crippling headaches. 
this is something that no matter what you believe, you should not trifle with. So it's going to be another hard pass for me. I'm not watching that. So special shout out to Peggy the doll. We love you and we are not making fun of you in any way. Please don't come after us. We love you. Absolutely. All in respect here. Um, although if somebody does watch the YouTube video, uh, let us know on social media how that goes for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but at we AF pod. Yeah. But we didn't tell you to do it. So yes. Don't blame me. Proceed at your own risk. Yeah. You've been warned. <laughs> All right. So Baggins is, is, says, I was very skeptical of this claim until the doll caused very terrifying activity during our filming, including manifestations of flies, camera problems, negative mental effects on me, and poltergeist activity. That just sounds also, like a Tuesday at my house. <laughs> I don't think we've mentioned on here that your house is haunted yet. Oh, my house is real fucking haunted. You can strap in. I'll tell you all those stories sometimes. <laughs> Uh, he also says that Peggy the doll was displayed in the Haunted Museum, but you have to sign a release to see her because of how dangerous it can be. Huh. He added that he's met many haunted dolls, including Robert the doll and Harold the doll, which uh, our friends over at Cheers from the Grave just did Robert the doll. And yes. she got a car accident the next day. What the actual fuck? <laughs> yeah, you do not trifle with Robert the doll. I just listened to that episode today. I already knew about our wreck, and then I listened to the episode, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and apologize to Robert the Doll just to get it out of the way. I know. You're handsome, and... Your little know. sailor suit is so jaunty, and we appreciate it. We appreciate you. All right. Yes. <sighs> okay. So, when filming with her on Deadly Possessions, uh, flies were also manifested out of nowhere and swarmed him, and then he had a dark energy overcome him. He interviewed a woman who told him while crying that she suffered a heart attack within seconds of looking into her eyes. And then he says, there was no doubting her. We also did a seance with Peggy and a well-known medium, and we heard a typewriter start typing by itself. So that's a whole lot of nope for me. No much nope. I don't like dolls. I I mean, you're fine, Peggy, but I mean, just, oof. I'm, I'm trying to tread lightly here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't haunt me. Right. Yeah. So when I was growing up, my mom collected dolls and we'd go to antique stores and she'd get them. Mostly these Chrissy dolls. They're like from the 70s and the hair grew. If you oh, they're so creepy. Yes. Yeah. So she'd clean them up and like restore them and then she'd sell them on eBay. This was like before Amazon, like eBay was the big thing. So she had this, our guest room was just shelves of Chrissy dolls. Terrifying as shit. And then every time I'd like sleep in there or we'd have guests like, my mom, or I did it a couple of times. We turn all the heads to point towards the bed. So we're sleeping in there, just see the eyeballs on the, yeah. So. Dear God. <laughs> I used to, I was very guilty of, uh, like, I love going to flea markets and antique stores. And I would always buy the, like, dirty, naked Barbies and take them home. Because I felt like they were homeless and needed good homes. Aww. But, like, porcelain dolls. I, like, wrote to the ladies on uh, Cheers from the Grave today and said that. I had a porcelain doll when I was like 11 or 12. My great grandpa had like dementia and didn't really like know anyone's names, but he was in a store with my aunt one time and saw this porcelain doll and said, that looks like Ashley. And like, he didn't remember my name half the time. So they bought the doll for me. I was so terrified of it. It stayed in my closet for years until I could like sneak it into the Goodwill stuff and send it away. And I know that's terrible, but like 11 year old me was not having that shit. Oh, man. Yeah, dolls are creepy. Yeah, those Chrissies. Uh, so sorry to the Willfingers if you're listening. 
I was the one that moved the heads when you were staying there that one time. So, yeah. It was the dolls. <laughs> I know my mom did it to me, and then I was like, oh, that's good. And then I did it to the them. Uh, anyway. Nice. So even if you don't go for the ghost stories, there's a lot of other pretty disturbing things collected there, especially from serial killers and celebrity deaths. They have Jack Kevorkian's VW death van. So that's pretty connected to yours. His okay. machine. So yeah, he apparently had a on the go version. They have pill bottles from the scene of Truman's Capote's death. And they have the propofil chair in the room that Michael Jackson died, which is a little creepy. That's fucked up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I also read that they have a Polaroid that one of the policemen took of Chris Farley after he OD'd. And that makes me incredibly uncomfortable and upset because I really love Chris Farley and I don't know why they would just put that out there. (laughs) Yeah, that no, I was not prepared for that. No, it makes, it's just gross. And it's not like the Museum of Death where they're, I just feel like this is just to be like shock value, not educational. Yeah, this is, this is spectacle, not normalization. Yeah, that's where he lost me. I was like, okay, this is cool. No, he lost me there. Um, Also, I love Chris Farley. And if you watch Adam Sandler sing his like ode to Chris Farley, you will cry. And if you don't cry, you don't have a heart. Yep. Big mood. I've listened to it twice and I cried both times. <laughs> Especially if Harvey's like, we'd be getting on a plane, we're getting ready to shoot Grown Ups 3. And I was like, oh, he would have been in that. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he also has paintings done by John Wayne Gacy as well. He has a bloody handprint from the Charles Manson collection, which was at yours too, I think. He has drawings from Richard Ramirez and a cauldron used by Ed Gein, which, if you don't know, he's the guy that. Wore a lot of people as suits. <laughs> he has a nipple belt. Oh, God. Yeah. I, Ed Gein is like my, the number one serial killer that like I am fascinated by. And yeah, so I was going to ask about Ed Gein's cauldron. He used it to, wasn't it to uh, melt like human fat? Mm. And he made like candles and stuff. Yeah, he did. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's, that's a rough one. Silence of the Lambs was kind of. You're inspired by him. I actually met. So oh was God. Texas Chainsaw Maskers. Oh, Jesus. I forgot the guy's name. Oh, fuck. Um, the FBI profiler that profiled Ed Gein and Gacy and all them. He came to. Oh, I forgot his name. Hold on, I'm going to Google so I don't sound like it. Okay, good. Hold music. All right, so when I was at UCA, since I'm old and I was there way before you were, uh, (laughs) John Douglas actually came, and he was the FBI profiler that did John Wayne Gacy. I think he did Ed Gein. He did Dahmer. He did, I can't remember his name, the guy that thought he was a vampire and had to bathe in blood. Uh, I can't remember that guy. But um, he he brought, like, crime scene photos, and he talked about it. He was so fascinating, and he's actually the one that has – you know, created characters like Silence of the Lambs. He did Hannibal Lecter. He also did, he helped with Bates Motel. Anyway, he did a lot of movies. And he actually had a Gacy story. He said that Gacy wanted him to come to his execution. He was like, nah, man, I've seen enough death. Fuck off. And then he said that the moment that John Wayne Gacy was being executed, he said it felt like this pressure on his body. 
and he couldn't get up. And then he said, as soon as that minute was over, he got up and he was like, that son of a bitch visited me on his way to hell. Nice. <laughs> what a dick. I know. He's such a cool dude, though. But yeah, he, ooh. Ugh. But yeah, he had a lot of cool stories. I wanted to be a profiler and then I realized I'm too empathetic and I'm a bleeding heart and I could not Same. deal with that much death. Nope. So, you know, I had to pass on that one. Yes. I can't even watch like ID channel for too many days in a row because there's too much death. Oh, I know. It really, it makes me physically hurt. See yeah. that much death. I can't, I can't do it. But yeah. they actually have some other stuff besides their murderbilia. Uh, they have a lot of creepy ass dolls. They also have some bloody mannequins and a lot of vicious circus and sideshow artifacts, which sideshow stuff makes me a little uncomfortable, too. Big mood. Uh, So this is not the people. The animals, although the place I went last weekend had a lot of sideshow animals, and I was like, (laughs) they were all little babies, so they didn't live very long. They had a little cyclops, little cyclops sheep, and it was baby. And I was like, what happened to it? Why is it dead? Humans happened to it. I know. Humans are garbage. Amen. All right. So, and it says you also might want to keep an eye out for jump scares, secret passageways, and unexpected surprises, which I saw one review that says that he hires a lot of little people to dress up like Yes. And that also seems a little offensive. (laughs) I was going to bring that up when you were done. Like, that bothers the shit out of me. Yeah. He lost me. I mean, I was like, I only knew a little bit about this. And I was like, okay, we'd go. But no, he's losing me. Yeah. But historically, this building is actually kind of cool. It's 30 rooms. It's an 11,000 square foot property built in 1939. And it was originally owned by Cyril S. Wingert, which I see Cyril. I think it's Cyril Figgis from Archer. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So he was a prominent businessman and he was a famous Las Vegas developer that was known for bringing in a lot of commercial establishments into Las Vegas. And a lot of them exist today. He was a prominent figure in the growth and development of Las Vegas as a whole. The sprawling two-story home left the Wingert family in 1970, and it served as a law office and home of the Nevada State Bar until the Hellfire Media made the purchase. I mean, come on, Baggins. That's the name yes. of your company. <laughs> of course it is. But it was classified as a landmark, mainly due to its social and economic influence of the Wingert family and, it, and the history it made on Las Vegas. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. He's got a little bit of historical significance besides all his jump scares and bullshit. Yeah. So throughout the years, there's actually been hostile spirits that were rumored to roam the halls of that building. Uh, Those are the family members that passed away. And they also claim that some satanic rituals happened in the basement during the 70s. So that's probably why he was attracted to that building because it was already supposedly haunted. Yep. So, tours are offered between 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. daily. Tickets cost $34 a person. Oh, that's gone down since we were there. Oh, that's still too much for me. Yeah. And they have to be reserved in advance, too. You can't just walk up there and grab one, which is very inconvenient. Yes. You also have to be 16 years or older to visit, which is different than the Death Museum, too. Yeah. And you have to sign a waiver before uh, they let you in. So... That's probably just for the suspense. Like, yeah, we're so dangerous. Sign this waiver. Yeah, that and I mean, like, look, I hate haunted houses like the shit that pops up around Halloween. I hate them. So 
if I walked into a museum and it was also a haunted house and I wasn't expecting it, they better have me sign a waiver because I'm going to accidentally swing on someone. (laughs) I love haunted houses. And oh God, when me and Zeke were dating, I think his brother came to visit and, uh, we were going through a haunted house with this guy with a chainsaw and he used me and his brother as a human shield. And I was like, yeah. all right, it's not just me. Cause we'd been in other like haunted houses and he uses me as a human shield every time for the chainsaw. But when I realized he does that for his brother too, I'm like, it's not personal. Yeah. <laughs> it's just survival at that point. Yes. Good military training. <laughs> I love it when he screams at a haunted house. It's amazing. <laughs> oh God. I wish I could just bottle that sound. Oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> So one last thing, apparently when you walk in, there's a, God, I don't know if I can say this, animatronic version of Zach Bates' baggage <laughs> as Zoltar from like Big, you know? <laughs> I've never known that I needed this in my life until just now. Apparently once you turn it on, the animatronic back in his eyes light up green and a voice rings out telling you that adventure awaits. <laughs> The guy that brought you brings you into the room then explains that this is a serious museum with seriously dangerous spirits and demons are inside. And if you wish to opt out of any room, you may. But I mean, what kind of ego do you have to have to make yourself so? If you want to give me a lecture on taking it seriously, don't greet me with an animatronic Zach Bagans's. Oh man, like, oh, I mean, it's gonna take a lot to unpack that. Like, I. I mean, why Zoltar? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Why okay. himself? Why can't he just use Avengers Zoltar? Like, yeah. They had one at the Buckhorn Saloon. Yeah. Like, I love the Zoltar machines. There's one in Hot Springs that I always stop at downtown. Like, I get a card every fucking time I go there. It's just ego. He's just yeah. like, I need you to see me. <laughs> Look, and I, I adore Zach Bagans. I do. I, like, I watch the Ghost Adventure shows all the time when it's not on regular tv i go back and watch old episodes mostly because i'm in love with aaron sorry honey but um (laughs) but i i love zach but i mean he's so fucking dramatic he is and i'm sure that's i mean that's what he's made his whole fortune oh yeah stuff on so i get it but he just cracks me up like yes if he invited me to be on ghost adventures would i turn it down no gosh just stop shit talking him then I know, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, so I feel like I would shit talk him to his face. I don't know. There's respect in that, though. There is. I, You know what? I don't say anything about anyone that I would not say to their face. It's a good quality. It's a yeah. Good quality. So, yeah. I have nothing against Zach Baggins other than I think he's hilarious and I think he has an ego. But yes. if you're going to be in show business and make a whole career on it, you got to have yes. an ego, so. So one day we will have egos like that. I will post his a uh, press release photo for this museum, and it is gold. He's like in this old timey like study, holding the skull, and oh, it's oh my god. He looks so serious, but it's hilarious. So yes, we will definitely share that. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, when we went to the Buckhorn, they had all those things. They had the Zoltar. They had that love machine. It's like measure your sexual prowess or whatever. And uh, they had the psychic, all of that stuff. But we didn't have any quarters. Zeke's like, who oh, brings man. fucking quarters anymore? So. Right. Yeah, no, I like always, always make sure I have quarters just for the damn Zoltar machine in Hot Springs. 
like I have a card I carry in my wallet that I got from that machine that I loved and I've had it since I was like 12. Oh wow. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. So. So yeah. So do you want weird or funny? I think I want weird. Okay, let's make it weird. I mean, we're already going pretty weird the last two, so let's just keep it going. Yes, excellent. Okay, so for weird, we are going to talk about Warren Anatomical Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. I don't know about that. Yeah, I actually thought when I gave you legs that you were going to talk about this place. (laughs) So, yeah, so I was, like, really surprised when you... Okay, so, guys, Keena and I don't know what the other one is going to talk about, in case you didn't pick up on that. We don't know the topic the other person picked until we start recording. But to make sure that we don't do the exact same things, we give each other vague, like, hey, I'm writing about things that are in these three cities or something like that so we don't cross-contaminate. Or, like, I'll message Keena and be like, hey, are you uh, writing about hamburgers, apple pie, or ice cream? And if she's talking about burgers, I won't talk about burgers, that kind of thing. But, yeah, so I really thought that you were going to do this one. But then when you said you weren't doing one in Massachusetts, I was like, okay, I think I got this. So, yeah, Warren Anatomical Museum. This museum is one of the last surviving anatomy and pathology museum collections in the United States. Ooh. It was founded in 1847 by Harvard anatomist and surgeon John Collins Warren, and it was made to preserve and classify specimens and models needed for teaching. Until 1999, the museum was in the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology, but now it's part of Countway Library Center for the History of Medicine. And it's not like a brick-and-mortar museum now. The collection is just for, like, a teaching and research resource. Oh, okay. And the the collection of artifacts still grows to this day. Like, stuff is still being donated to it. So, its mission statement is to inform contemporary medicine, the Harvard health community, and the public. The collection itself contains over 15,000 specimens and artifacts. Oh, wow. Its earliest item originates from the... Museum of Massachusetts Medical College, which was open from 1810 to 1846. The anatomical and pathological teaching and research collections grew until the 1940s. Stuff was donated here by Harvard professors, New England physicians, and Harvard-trained clinicians. The curators brought osteological preparations and anatomical models from European anatomy dealers. I know back in the day, anatomy dealers were just like fancy words for grave robbers Um, so i'm kind of expecting that some of these some of these anatomical specimens were not acquired in like the most up and up terms but i mean it doesn't specify and i didn't really look into it so that's just supposition on my part so some of the physicians that donated stuff donated casts that they made of their patients to be added like physical deformities that kind of thing In 1906, the museum began collecting historical medical instruments and devices to document the history of medicine, and specifically Harvard's contribution to medical science. Okay. So, basically, this place is like the end-all be-all of medical museum stuff for the U.S. and medical school. So, we're going to talk a little bit about what they have. Here's just the general figures first. The collection includes... 
3,200 anatomical and osteological preparations, 875 wet tissue preparations, over 1,000 water watercolors, over 1,000 watercolors, drawings, photographs, and lantern slides, an estimated 1,000 anatomical models and casts, 500 human and non-human calculi, which I had to look up, and that is a stone, like a gallbladder stone or gallstone, kidney stone, that kind of thing. Oh, I didn't a stone know that. that's I didn't either. Like I was like they do calculus on non-humans, and I don't know. And then roughly 8,500 medical, dental, and public health instruments and devices. So its strengths are in medical education. So here is just a rundown of some of the stuff they have. So they have the skull, life cast, and tamping iron of Phineas Gage. Now, Phineas Gage, he was born in 1823 and he died in 1860. And he's one of the most famous neurological cases. He sustained a traumatic brain injury in 1848 when a three-foot, seven-inch iron rod was fired through his head. Now, the accident cost Gage his eye, and it altered his personality, but he survived until 1860. And so his physician, John Harlow, donated his, after his death, donated his skull and the iron that went through his skull to the museum in 1868. Oh, that's so cool. I knew about him, and it's in a book that I have, but I didn't know where it was at now. That is so cool. Yes. So, yes, it is in Boston. And I I don't know. I didn't read into, like, how he came to have the skull. I picture it, like, in a weird process like they do for taxidermy when they break the skulls down of animals where they put it in the box of dirt with the bugs that are flesh-eating. I hope that's not the case. I didn't want to look it up because I knew it would gross me out. But yeah, so that is there. The Boston Phrenological Society collection is there. The Boston Phrenological Society started in 1832 to celebrate the life of Johann Gaspar Spurzheim. And phrenology is like the study of the, I don't know why I'm making this motion because they can't <laughs> see me in podcast land, but like the study of like the lumps and lines on your head and all of that. And so Spurzheim's lecture collection was used to develop a cabinet of phrenological castings. So they have these castings of people's heads that they use to study. And so all of that is there and there's approximately 250 castings that remain there. And then the Boston Society of Medical Improvement has a pathological cabinet and the first curator of the Museum J.B.S. Jackson was the society's curator as well. So he kind of collected it through the society and then moved it to the Warren Museum. And this cabinet contains 954 specimens. The society's collection had around 1,200 items, but 954 of those have ended up in this cabinet. Like they housed it here, but it wasn't officially accepted into like Harvard Medical School's research referendum until 1889. So it was there at like 1870, but then 1889 was when they were like, okay, this is definitely part of our collection. So it had a little limbo time, which is a little oh. weird to me. And then there is the Dickinson Belsky Obstetrical Model Collection. So this collection was donated from the Cleveland Museum of Natural History in 2007. Obstetrician Robert Latou Dickinson and sculptor Abram Belsky created models to teach healthcare professionals and the public about obstetrics. 
The Cleveland Health Museum acquired the models from Dickinson in 1950, and the Health Museum later absorbed the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. So it wasn't like they just got this one item from Cleveland. They got the whole museum. Oh, wow. And then the this collection contains over 200 models, and this includes the model of the average American man and woman that they call Norma and Norman, which is I don't know. It just makes me think of young Frankenstein with the Abbey normal brain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So this has, and it also has Dickinson's papers of um, the history of medicine. And then oh, last, wow. there is the pelvis and proximal femurs of Charles Lowell. They have mounted the hip preparations of Charles Lowell. Lowell dislocated his hip in a horse riding accident in 1821. He wasn't satisfied with his doctor's care of him, so he went into a well-publicized malpractice case. Oh. Uh, he took issue with the medical evidence, and he re- requested a examination of his hip joint after his death. So basically, he was like, hey, this is really fucked up, and I know that it's not going to be able to be fixed. So after I die, I want y'all to look at this and like pursue this case. Oh, so, wow. That's really cool. Yeah, so Harvard physicians Henry Oliver and Jonathan Mason Warren conducted the autopsy. And then Warren's son, John Collins Warren, donated the hip preparations to the museum. So it's the exhibit is called Charles Lowell's Hip, an early case of parentheses alleged medical malpractice. So like I want to be that level extra. Oh my like, god. Be like, look. The doctors could not, especially with like a chronic chronic illness thing, like after I die, I want them to figure out exactly what's wrong with me and then just like stick it to everyone and maybe put me in a museum. I love it. They have that one museum where you can donate your body to science. What is it called? The body world? Yes. Travel and they'll like skin you and put you on display. (laughs) I am fascinated by that place and I definitely want to go there as well. And I almost wrote about that instead of the medical museum, but I'm... But yeah, because like the the body world, they break your body down. I know they have like an entire circulatory system of a human laid out. It's so cool. And like nerves and bones and muscles. And then they recreate some things. I think there's like a man with his flayed skin to like recreate an art piece. And yes, they have like a smoker versus a non-smoker with their lungs Mm -hmm. next to each other. It's pretty fascinating, but it's also pretty pretty morbid <laughs> isn't that the place that has the horse i'm not sure i know that they got a lot of flack because they had a pregnant woman yikes okay that, that caused a lot of ethical you know i could see that yeah i remember talking about it in one of my college classes but yeah it was kind of like an ethical issue like she did like she had to have given consent you can't yeah but yeah it's a that's an interesting exhibit. Yeah, I don't know if it's still, is it still touring? Also, that's another uh, funeral preparation option is donating your body to science, just so people are aware. Yeah. They have, like, body farms, too, where you can donate your body to body farms so they can do yes. like, size stuff. That's pretty cool, but also kind of terrifying to think about. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Okay, it's traveling Europe right now. It's currently in Germany. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that's and definitely it, something I want to see too. Oh, they do have animals. Here's a. Uh, okay, that's what I thought. Because the opening of Westworld, the like the opening credits has the 
like horse that's galloping, but it's like just shows muscle and everything as it's being built. And that reminds me of the body world horse. Okay. It'll be coming back to the United States. Road trip. (laughs) Oh, they're coming to Boston. Hey, we could go to that and go see this museum. It'll be on the historical bucket list that you get if you're a Patreon member. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's really fascinating. I really love medical history. And I think I mentioned like my thesis was on uh, an insane asylum, but they did a lot of medical stuff. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I would that's awesome. love to get my hands on medical history that I could work at. Hire me. Yes. If you're listening, hire Kina. <laughs> if the Museum of Death is listening, hire me. We are good workers. I we are. We're the best. <sighs> anyway. All right. So, uh, we want to take a different turn and go a slightly more historical than morbid. <laughs> Hell yes. Um, so I had historical AF and I wanted to talk about the fascinating history of the Louvre. Ooh. I think a lot of people don't realize that the Louvre is not just a museum. It has this really long, complicated past. So huh. I'm going to drop some knowledge. You ready? Hell yeah. All right. But first, we're going to take a news detour. <laughs> Yay! So the Louvre was actually closed on May 27th for a strike. The statement on Twitter is as follows. Due to a recent increase in visitor numbers, members of the Musée du Louvre reception and security staff have exercised their right to strike. The museum will therefore remain closed. What? All right, so the union actually cited several problems, saying that it was caused by overcrowded conditions an aggressive and impatient public, jostling crowds and inaccurate emergency evacuation measures. And it's mostly because attendance is consistently growing to a point where they have more attendance than any other museum in the world. And their employment has actually gone down. So the staff has went on strike to be like, we can't deal with this many people and you got to help. So I got the opportunity to go to France in 2006. And even when I was there, it was insane. There were so many people that it was like waves and waves of people. I can't imagine working there, especially security. There's no way. And yeah. if you've ever been to Europe, it's really different than the United States. So here we have like glass and ropes and chains and like don't touch the shit. In Europe, they don't do that because they just expect you to be a decent human being, not touch shit. Yeah. So I, I'm sure the stress of being a security with a bunch of dumb Americans being like, I want to touch that. <sighs> I just, I can't, yeah. which I, I had almost an incident, which I'll talk about in a little bit <laughs> because of the lack of uh, ropes. Okay. Nice. So back to the history. So the Louvre is the world's largest museum and houses one of the most impressive art collections in history. The magnificent Baroque style palace and museum, the Le Musée du Louvre in French, sits along the bank of the Seine River in Paris. And it's one of the city's biggest tourist attractions. It's right up there with the uh, Notre Dame de Paris. So the Louvre was actually built as a fortress in 1190. Oh, wow. Did I just blow your mind? Yeah. But it was reconstructed in the 16th century to serve as a royal palace. Like many buildings, it was built and rebuilt over the years. And during its time as a royal residence, the Louvre saw tremendous growth. Nearly every monarch expanded it. Today, it covers a total of 652,300 square feet. Damn. In 1682, Louis the 
14th moved the royal residence to Versailles, and the Louvre became the home of various art academies, offering regular exhibitions of its members' works. During the French Revolution, Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette were forcibly removed from Versailles and imprisoned in the Tuileries Palace, which is adjacent to the Louvre, and then they were beheaded in 1793. Oh, I didn't realize it was that close. Womp womp. Which one? The Tuileries? Yes. Yes. Um, also, as an American, I'm so dumb. But, like, okay, so if somebody dies here, there's usually, like, crosses and flowers and there's, like, memorials and you know where things are. But they don't do that in France. So I was kind of shocked we were going around a corner and they're like, oh, that's where Marie Antoinette lost her head. And it's just a street. It's kind of a cultural shock. Because here there would be, like, monuments and historical markers and all kinds of shit. There was nothing. It was the same thing where Princess Diana died. We were in that tunnel and we were in traffic and they were like, oh yeah, she died right here. And I was just like blown away because I expected it to be flowers, you know, at least something. But it's just not their culture to do that, I guess. But it was really interesting. uh, Anyway, (laughs) back on track, Kina. Damn it. Okay. The National Assembly opened the Louvre as a museum in August of 1793 with a collection of 537 paintings. But the museum closed in 1796 because of structural problems with the building. Then Napoleon reopened the museum and expanded the collection in 1801. And the museum was renamed Musée Napoleon. Let's talk about egos. <laughs> this guy. Yeah. God damn it, Napoleon. <laughs> oh, God. So the History Museum in France is basically like a shrine to Napoleon. Like his crypt is seven sarcophagi. And then he's in a rotunda with seven angels looking down upon him. So, yeah. We should all have an ego like Napoleon. He really likes the number seven. <laughs> I think it's probably symbolic of something. I don't remember, but uh, that was an amazing uh, exhibit, by the way. I should have done so. Uh, if we had more time, I would have done that military museum there. But it was the first time that I'd been in a country that lost so many people to the Holocaust. And it broke me because yeah. they lost so many people because it wasn't just jews that died it was gypsies and homosexuals and they lost a lot of people so it was well they had like piles of shoes and clothes and it was just too much about broke my damn heart in two yeah so anyway it was napoleon bonaparte who created the foundation for the world famous museum of the louvre that it is today he wanted to be in charge of creating a collection of art and that's why he renamed it He wanted to create a museum of France with wonderful collections of art from around the world. He enlarged its collection by bringing art from his military campaigns, private donations, and commissions he made. But let's not forget that he stole it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, a lot of this stuff was like, oh, he collected art. No, he forcibly stole shit from, like, when they went to Egypt, they stole things. They didn't ask for it. They just forcibly took it. Like, yeah. Come on, dude. I think that's why I'm so okay with Mexico wanting that guy's leg back because, like, that's, I think that it would be within people's rights to ask for shit that Napoleon stole. Yeah, and, like, for me, I understand that if things stay somewhere, nobody will ever see them because some people will never get the chance to go to Egypt, especially with all the, you know, stuff going on. It's not very safe right now. But if it was stolen, that's different. If they gave it, like they've given obelisks and stuff to the United States, I think that's fine. But if you just show up with your army and take shit, I think that's different. I don't, <sighs> I have a lot of issues with Napoleon. Same. <laughs> <You can't tell. laughs> Same. Right. He will come up again. Absolutely. 
So his contributions included spoils from Belgium, Italy, Prussia, and Austria. In 1815, when Napoleon abdicated with the Treaty of Fontainebleau, almost 5,000 artworks were returned to their countries of origin. So that's pretty cool. They did have to return a bunch of it. But France was allowed to keep a few hundred of the works. And the Louvre reverted back to its original name. And the artifacts from Napoleon's conquests in Egypt remained. Which, I have to say, being there, that was the one thing I wanted to see was Hatshepsut's temple thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I enjoyed it while I was there. But I didn't really think about it being horrible because they stole it. But hindsight, I probably should have been like, oh, sucks. But then again, I got to see it. And I don't know if I'll exactly. ever Exactly, yeah. I won't judge you for being happy to see it. I understand both sides. It's a really complicated, like, ethics thing. There's very well-educated answers for both sides, and I don't know which one to... So, I'm neutral. I'm Switzerland here. Okay. Yeah. So, after Napoleon, the Louvre continued to expand. The multi-building Louvre complex was completed under the reign of Napoleon III in the mid-19th century. The Louvre's collection includes Egyptian antiquities ancient Greek and Roman sculptures, paintings by the old masters, notable European artists before the 1800s, and the crown jewels and other artifacts from French nobles, which was really cool seeing the crown jewels. They're very shiny. I like shiny things. Just saying. (laughs) Uh, Its work spanned from the 6th century BCE to the 19th century CE, with more than 35,000 works that are on display at any given time. The displays are divided into eight departments, the Near Eastern Antiquities, Egyptian Antiquities, Greek, Etruscan, Roman Antiquities, Islamic Art, Sculptures, Decorative Arts, Paintings, and Prints and Drawings. So without question, the Louvre's most famous work of art is Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. She enchants hordes of visitors with her enigmatic smile. This small but iconic painting is only 21 by 30 inches, which I think is a misconception to a lot of people. They think she's this big thing like you see in the movie. She's actually pretty small. Yeah, I thought yeah, she was I thought- huge until um, somebody I know recently went and saw her and was talking about it. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, it's like super tiny. Yeah, she's very small. She's also covered with bulletproof glass now and she's flanked by guards. So the protection is a result of her being stolen in 1911. So extra security. Historical detour. Hey, I haven't done one of these in a while. Okay. Mona Lisa is also called La Giaconda. She is an oil painting on poplar wood panel. And she's probably the world's most famous painting, which I don't, I'm going to roll my eyes. Can't yeah. see it. it was painted sometime between 1503 and 1519 while he was living in Florence. There has been much speculation and debate regarding the identity of the portrait sitter. Scholars and historians have posited numerous interpretations, including that she is Lisa de del Gioconda, the wife of Florentine merchant Francisco di Bartolomeo del Gioconda. It's the alternative title to the work. The identity was first suggested in 1550 by artist biographer Giorgio Vasari. It's a lot of Italian names, so bear (laughs) with me here. (laughs) Another theory is that the model may have been Leonardo's mother, Caterina. This interpretation was put forth by none other than Sigmund Freud. Good old Freud. He seemed to think that the Mona Lisa's mysterious smile emerged from a perhaps unconscious desire and memory of his mother. Oh, Jesus Christ. But he but just runs everything with his... He does. <laughs> mommy lusting. No uh. thanks. The third suggestion was that the painting was, in fact, Leonardo's self-portrait, given the resemblance between the sitter and the artist's facial features. Some scholars suggest that disguising himself as a woman was a riddle. So, 
That's also okay. a theory that I think I've heard. Yeah. But he did a lot of riddles and a lot of his paintings had hidden messages. Right. If you've watched The Da Vinci Code, you've probably heard of some of that. Oh, yes. Which I was in Paris when The Da Vinci Code came out. That's why it was so crowded. Tom Hanks was in there somewhere and people were losing their damn minds. So. Nice. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good time. <laughs> So, the sitter's identity has not been proven. Numerous attempts in the 21st century to settle the debate have included seeking Lady Gioconda's remains and testing her DNA to recreate the image of her face, but it was inconclusive. Okay, that's a weird way to go about it, but okay. Right? Yeah, that's that's a bit extreme. (laughs) Yes. So, French King Francis I, in whose court Leonardo spent the last years of his life, acquired the work after his death, and it became part of the royal collection. For centuries, the portrait was secluded in French palaces until insurgents claimed the royal collection as property of the people during the French Revolution. Following a period of hanging in Napoleon's bedroom, the Mona Lisa was installed in the Louvre Museum at the turn of the 19th century. So they got it back, and then Napoleon's like, this is a good idea. When I was there, they told us that Josephine, Napoleon's wife, hated it being over their bed. So she forced him to get rid of it, and they said that a servant took it for a while and, like, rolled her up and put it under their bed. I don't know if that's true, but that's what somebody at the Louvre told me. So if it's wrong, it's not my fault. So Yikes. Okay. <laughs> but it was part of the whole, there's this weird fascination. Like, people kept taking her because they're just obsessed with her. Yeah. So in 1911, the painting was stolen, and it caused a immediate media sensation. It was worldwide news. Two years later, an art dealer in Florence alerted local authorities when a man had tried to sell him the painting. Police found the portrait stashed in a false bottom of a trunk belonging to Vicenzo Perugia, Perugia, an Italian immigrant who had briefly worked at the Louvre, fitting glass on selection of paintings, including the Mona Lisa. Yikes, I would not want to be that guy. Yeah. And then during World War II, the Mona Lisa was singled out as the most endangered artwork in the Louvre and was evacuated to various locations within France countryside. And then it returned to the museum in 1945 after peace had been declared. That's awesome. So, detour over. And it's not that I don't like the Mona Lisa. I just think it's overrated. Yes. I think that out of everything that's in the Louvre, I don't understand why it's the one thing everybody's, like, obsessed over. But that's just me. I also studied art history for, like, three years. So, I'm a snob. So <laughs> Crowds also flocked to see the armless beauty of the Venus de Milo. And the Winged Victory, that's also known as the Nike of Samothrace. So, I'm sure you've seen those somewhere. Oh, yes. Other popular works include a stele inscribed with the Code of Hammurabi, which brings me back to my earlier story. So, we go into this room, and it's like the Code of Hammurabi. And we're reading all the inscription on the walls, and I'm backing up, and I'm backing up, and my heel hits something, and I turn around, and it's fucking right there. Like, I almost knocked the fucker over, and... (laughs) It was on a tiny platform, so I hit the platform, but there was no ropes. There was nothing. And I was like, oh, I can't be trusted. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so it scared me to death. But I think it's probably, like, reinforced. I think I was just terrified. I was like, oh, God. No, I would have, like, launched full panic attack. Yeah, so if you don't know, the Code of Hammurabi is the first written rules of human history. So it's pretty important. Put something around it, Louvre. And the French would have had so much trouble pronouncing your name in that news article. yeah and there were security i know some people are like getting really close and they were like yelling like back up and stuff but uh they don't put anything around anything because you should just know better yes they also have da vinci's sculpture the dying slave 
Antonio Canova's 18th Century, The Psyche Revived by Cupid's Kiss, which this pisses me off because that is my favorite sculpture of all time. Same. And I didn't know it was at the Louvre because I didn't really study it until I started my art history lessons like when I got back from France. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, I love it. And they're like, oh, it's at the Louvre. I was like, I was in like the room next to it and I didn't see it. Damn it. They only gave us two hours at the Louvre and it's basically a city. So you have to spend days there. So we circled what we had to see and I didn't know it was there. So I have to go back. So say we can go back. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So it also has Eugene Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People, which depicts a bare-breasted liberty goddess leading a charge in the French Revolution. And it's thought that that is what inspired Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Yay! And then it also has the Jacques-Louis David, The Coronation of Napoleon, which I have a uh, recreation of that in my house because I'm a nerd. Nice. Of course you do. And it was commissioned by Napoleon himself as a good reminder of the Louvre's history, which, okay... Like, this is the largest painting I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it is probably the size of, like, a normal room wall, but, like, twice the height. Like, oh. the, the fact that David even painted this blows my mind. I can't even... How do you even do that? I'm an artist, and I still can't imagine how you paint something that big. It's right up there with the Sistine Chapel. I'm like, how did you do that? Why is it all in proportion? I don't know. Blowing my mind. <laughs> And then also has the Raft of Medusa, which I wrote a really badass paper on in college. So, which is also a, one of my favorites. I know it's you. You don't know what it is. Google it. It's this shipwreck, and they're all on a raft. And the story, and it was real. It really happened. They all started cannibalism. <laughs> oh yep. man, we got back to cannibalism this time. <gasps> I swear to God, we need like <laughs> that could be our just word of the episode, and we can like Pee Wee Herman like scream and. <laughs> Furniture will scream. Yes. Yeah. So they all started starving and they started eating each other. So it's a really cool painting. And the artist actually did the first paintings of mental illness as well, which is really awesome. cool. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's reel it back in, Kina. Okay. So although today the collection is the most interesting part of the museum, the building itself is an important exhibit too. The building is primarily a Renaissance and French classical style. The first medieval elements of the old fortress can actually still be seen underground beneath the pyramid around the lobby area. So you can actually go way down and you see the medieval castle like you're walking around. That's amazing. Um, I actually have a picture of me standing in that medieval fortress. So humble brag. I'm going to post it. Excellent. This is one of the best trips of my life. So (laughs) I'm really excited to get to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so in 18, or 1983, the Louvre underwent renovation plan known as the Grand Louvre. Part of the plan called for a new design of the main entrance. Architect I.M. Pei was awarded the project, and he designed an underground lobby and a modern glass pyramid structure in the courtyard. It was inaugurated in 1988, and the period, the period, the pyramid would become a celebrated element of the Landmarks Museum design. It's my personal favorite, says Gudek Sinjar. Combining a traditional style with modern architecture, it shows that the Louvre is a timeless beauty. And that guy is a docent at the Louvre. Awesome. So, side note, I.M. Pei actually just passed away on May 16th of this year. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Let's pour one out for old genius there. Yes. (sighs) I actually, uh, in one of my uh, research classes, this my last semester of my library degree what are the dogs barking at i don't know it wouldn't be a fucking episode if they didn't lose their goddamn minds right 
I have them locked out, but you can still hear them. Um, but anyway, I did a report on different like famous architects, like like that person and E. Faye Jones that does stuff here in Arkansas and stuff like that. So it's really fascinating. Y'all should all definitely look them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because of its size and scale of the collection, it's impossible to see the entirety of the Louvre in one visit. The museum reported about 8.1 million visitors in 2017, so prepare for crowds, especially around the Mona Lisa. <laughs> like I said, when I went, they gave us two hours, and that was bullshit, so. Yes. I'm a little bitter. And as of 2018, admission to the entire museum cost 15 euros. Admission is free for anyone under 18, which I thought was really cool. Like, 18 is pretty old. Most yeah. things in the U.S. is usually, like, six. So yeah. And they also give free admission to teachers, art teachers, pass holders, and people with disabilities. And it's also free on days like Bastille Day, which is July 14th. Huh, that's cool. So that is me trying to summarize centuries into, like... 15 minutes <laughs> nice it was beautiful oh i loved it it was it was one of those experiences i'll never forget i wish i would have had more time but like i said we just grabbed a pamphlet and i circled the things that i knew that i couldn't live with myself if i missed so yes. like hot chips at the kota hammurabi uh we did see the mona lisa and then like napoleon and all that but so much more to see yeah, I like I really want to go there i want to go on like a backpacking trip and go all over europe and see stuff like that. Your door just opened. I hope that was one of your dogs. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I forget you can see that. <laughs> yes. That's like the third time it's done that since we've been recording today. But that was the first time that I didn't see like a dog ear or anything. And it just like quickly swung open. <laughs> I had an incident with one of the doors in the house earlier from my haunted house. So I'm still like a little jumpy about doors. <laughs> but yes. Are you ready for my funny... I am. I'm so excited. Okay, before I start, I have to give our listeners a little disclaimer. Well, an sort of apology and a disclaimer. Last week, I'm sorry I talked about poop and put a picture of poop on your social media. <laughs> Not sorry enough to remove it or redact that piece. But yes, so sorry about that. But I am perpetually a 12-year-old boy on the inside, I think. So... For my funny, I decided to talk about the Icelandic Phallological Museum in Husavik, Iceland. <laughs> Is that what I think it means? Oh, it does. <laughs> so for those not in the know... The Iceland Phallological Museum is probably the only museum in the world to contain a collection of phallic specimens belonging to all the various types of mammals found in a single country. So we gonna talk about dicks. <laughs> yes. Also, I love your uh, your lap ornament. Kina's holding a whole dog right now. It's wonderful. He wouldn't take no for an answer. Yeah, no, he wasn't having it. Anyway, so philology. I had never heard of this, and I'm kind of fascinated, kind of horrified. I promise I won't actually post pictures of these specimens this week on our social media. Like, you're just gonna have to Google it. I don't want to get zucked because I posted dicks on <laughs> Facebook. <Zucked>. So, <laughs> yes, I'm just going to get zucked. But anyway, so philology is an ancient science which, until recent years, has received very little attention in Iceland because, or except for as a borderline field of study in other disciplines such as history, art, psychology, literature, 
artistic fields. Like last week, how we talked about the cave drawings and the the man with the giant boner. Philology is seen in different parts of history, but this museum is like strictly philology. It's not like just historical things that also happen to have penises. It's wall-to-wall dicks. <laughs> so so mature i'm over here i know right right so um i like and i picture this where is it germany where they have the underground bunker that's like full of like every type of seed in the world so if things get destroyed you can use that seed bank to like i think it's in germany i don't know to like repopulate i wonder if they have like i don't know like a backlog of sperm from all these specimens so they can like repopulate the species i don't know so the Phallological Museum contains a collection of more than 200 penises and penile parts belonging to almost all the land and sea mammals that can be found in Iceland. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. So if you go, you will encounter 55 specimens belonging to sif- wow, 16 different kinds of whale. Oh, one, God. one specimen taken from a rogue polar bear. Rogue? Why yeah. Rogue. Like, he just, like, wandered into your yard? And, yeah, like, did you have to take his dick? Like, what is happening? All right, back up. Aren't whale dicks, like, enormous, too? They are. <laughs> yes. And there's even a reference further down somewhere, I can't remember where, that talks about being able to compare a homo sapien penis to a whale penis. <laughs> <sighs> Whatever. So, yes, a rogue polar bear, which, like, did the rogue polar bear die and you took it or was it punishment for being rogue i I don't know it's creeping me out but anyway 30 that's not funny (laughs) no it's not i'm sorry 36 (laughs) specimens belonging to seven different kinds of seal and walrus oh man and more than 115 specimens originating from 20 different kinds of land mammal this totals more than 200 specimens belonging to 46 different kinds of mammal Including that of Homo sapien. Oh. So, yeah. So, some human specimens. Which could go right. under morbid. But, like, it's it's wall-to-wall dick. So, I find it hilarious. Join me. There, there's some dude out there that's like, hell yeah, my dick's gonna be a museum someday. Just right. watch. Right. Like, I guarantee there is at least one dude in this ar- on this earth right now that's, like, in a bar that's like, look, one day I'm gonna be famous. <laughs> This dude's going to be in museums. Not why you think, but yes. So if you're a dude and you want your dick in a museum, specify that you don't want to be next to the whales. Yes, yes. Ask to be like, I don't know, by the ant penis or something. Like something tiny. I don't know. (laughs) Definitely put that in your will and like don't add us about that. So, so yes, there are also 24. Okay, I don't know what this means. 24 folklore specimens. And then 50 foreign specimens. So, like, animals that come from different countries are also represented. And I'm not sure what the folklore specimen is. I forgot to look that up. Would it be, like, a mythological creature that people have claimed to capture? I guess. But I don't think they have, like, this case holds the chupacabra penis. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. So, besides the biological section of the museum, there's also artistic oddments and practical utensils related to the theme. So like forks that are shaped like dicks or salt shakers that are shaped like dicks, that kind of thing. 
Okay, so a little history on it. The foundation, okay, let me just, this is a direct quote from the founder who, I'm going to butcher this name, Siguror Hajarterson, who was born in 1941. This is the direct quote from him about creating the museum. The foundation was laid in 1974 when I got a pizzle or a bull's penis. Today I learned that a bull's penis is called a pizzle. Huh. As a child, I was sent into the countryside during summer vacations, and there I was, what the hell, it was given a pizzle as a whip for the animals. Um, okay. So, at that time, in 1974, I was living in the town of Akranes, 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 let's go with that, on the southwest coast, working as the headmaster in a secondary school. Some of my teachers used to work in summer in a nearby whaling station, and after the first specimen, they started bringing me whale penises, supposedly to tease me. That's a weird fucking way to tease a kid. Or to tease a headmaster. Also, those are huge and heavy. That's a lot of work, too. Yeah, that's a lot. You know what? I appreciate the dedication to the joke, though. Like At this point, I don't... Like, <laughs> is it even a joke? Or is it just some weird fetish some kid? Like, I'm going to bring you whale penis. Yeah, yeah, so, so then, then the idea I, came up gradually that it might be interesting to collect specimens from more mammalian species. You know what? I don't want to be known as the person who collects dicks. That's not the legacy I want. Mm-mm, hard pass. But you know what? There's a job for everyone, and he found his niche. So he said collecting these organs progressed slowly in the beginning, and in 1980, I had 13 specimens, four from whales and nine from land mammals. In 1990, there were 34 specimens, and when the museum opened in Reykjavik in August 1997, the specimens were 62 in number. In the spring of 2004, the museum moved to the small fishing village of Husivik, the whale-watching capital of Europe. That's a good place to live if you like to collect whale penises, apparently. And it was moved back to Reykjavik in the autumn of 2011 and opened there under the direction of a new curator. So, yes. He said the reaction of visitors has been very favorable. There's been more than 100 articles about the museum published in over 26 countries all over the world. The visitor numbers increase every year. The numbers rise. Yes, they rise to the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. So the founder, this Sigurd Hajarterson, he was a historian or is a historian with a BA degree from um, University of Iceland. He's got a degree in Latin American history from Edinburgh, Scotland. He was a teacher and a headmaster for 37 years. In the last 26 years of that, he was a history and Spanish teacher in Reykjavik in 2004. He retired in Husevik. He's translated books mostly on Latin American history and all that. So I don't know where the disconnect came between like his actual education and his hobby, but I've got respect the game. So I wanted to say, so his son, Hjorter Giselli Sigurdsson, used to be a logistics manager, but then he became the curator in 2011. And as I was looking up how to say his name, which I never fully figured out how to do, I found that he is on IMDb because (laughs) he was in a documentary about this museum. It's called The Final Member. Yes, and I did not know I needed to watch this until I looked it up. 
the tagline is the world's only penis museum needs one last endowment. Whatever that means. It's listed as documentary, comedy, and drama. Penis puns. Right. So we definitely need to watch it. And I even found there's like a ton of articles about this place, too, that people should definitely look up. One of them was actually talking about the discrepancies between the documentary and what actually is like at the museum. Apparently there's some incorrect facts. But yeah, so I really want to watch it now. I'm adding it to my to watch list. But yeah, so that is the Icelandic Phallological Museum. Phallological is just really fun to say, by the way. It is. That's a fun little word. And uh, I googled what a folklore penis is. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was my next stop. The museum has a folklore section that exhibits mythological penises. I was right. All right. So from the online catalog, it lists specimens from elves, trolls, Kelpies, 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 and the nasty ghost of Sneffville. What is that? Okay. Pause. A 700,000-year-old glacier. No. Oh, that's a place. It's a glacier dick? It's a place. Mm. Okay. A ghost of a glacier place. Okay. Okay. Uh, they say that they have an elf penis, which is the museum's... <laughs> I'm sorry. They say they have an elf penis that the museum's catalog describes it as unusually big and old. <laughs> okay. So, obviously, it's from an elf. It's among his favorites that... How did you say his name? Sigur? Uh, Sigur? 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 It's his Sigur. favorite. Yes. The unusually big and old elf penis is his favorite. Of course it is. Because of course he has a famous uh, favorite penis. Don't we all? Oh, oh, it gets better. It cannot be seen as Icelandic folklore holds that elv- elves and trolls are invisible. What? What the actual fuck? So he just... Does he just have, like, an empty cabinet and is like, behold, it is invisible. Tisk, tisk. I'm calling shenanigans. <laughs> it also says that they have a penis of a merman, a one-legged, one-armed, and one-eyed monster called a beach murmur. Of course murmur. it's a one-eyed monster. <laughs> Yikes. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and, uh... And an Icelandic Christmas lad found dead at the foot of a mountain in 1985 whose penis was presented to the museum by a former mayor of Reykjavik. Reykjavik. That's not mythological. I only know how to pronounce Reykjavik because of when the um, volcano exploded there. And it was on the news a lot. Oh, oh no. I just saw Will Dick. Oh, no. (laughs) I managed to not actually see any, like, up-close pictures of penises while I was researching it because I did not want to. Says they are preserved by formaldehyde pickling, drying, stuffing, and salting. Stuffing. Oh, salting. Oh, like herring. I don't like it. I don't like it. (laughs) The bull has been converted to a walking stick. Oh, my God. (laughs) Of course it has. Oh, I need to stop reading, but I can't. Stop it. Oh stop God. it. <laughs> Some of these are like full bloners, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put my phone down now. I was going to say, just, just put it down. Just put it down. <laughs> I'm going to get some weird ass ads. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Terry was complaining about something he was looking up the other day. He was like, yeah, I'm going to get real, really weird ads. And I was like, yeah, welcome to the life of researching for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Ooh, I do want to go to Iceland. They have those uh, glass tents you can stay at to look at the northern lights. Yes, I just sent Terry one of those articles the other day about how I want to stay there. <laughs> Be like, sorry, honey, we're going to watch the northern lights and then we're going to go to the penis museum tomorrow. Yes, that's just a thing that's going to happen. It's on my bucket list. It has to. I mean, for the experience, at least. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. Bucket list. Yes. So, that's all about museums. I almost said all about dicks. It's all about museums. (laughs) Also, yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Oh, patron shout out. Patreon shout out. While I'm thinking about it. Yeah. This week's shout out is to... Natalie Colbreth, who was one of my roommates in college, and she's wonderful and amazing, and we actually met because our very first day of freshman year in the dorms, I passed out in the hall meeting, and her, my, my roommate kneed me in the face as I fell, and I got a bruise, but she, Natalie and her roommate at the time stayed behind to make sure I was okay. And we became friends. Oh, that's sweet. Yes. So we we shared a bedroom our sophomore year and had lots of fun times. And now she's in L.A. and wonderful. And I love her and I miss her. And I was so pumped when I saw her name pop up. We love you, Natalie. We love you. Thank you so much. Yes. And if you'd like to join Patreon, it is www.patreon.com slash historicalafpod. And we have two tiers right now. The Fierce AF, that is our book list, which is a curated list of fiction and nonfiction books relating to our topics every week. And then we have a historical bucket list with places that you should go involving the places we talk about. And it also comes with a social media shout out and our undying gratitude. Yes. Our, our second tier is Majestic AF, and you get all the goodies from the first one. Plus, you get some bloopers, deleted scenes. You get the episode a day or two early, depending on how fast I edit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then you also get a shout out on air, like you just heard. And you also get a Q&A party with us. We also have Drunk Dives, which we have one up right now, which is Anne Boleyn. We did the historical inaccuracies of the other Boleyn girl. And you guys, I had a lot of feelings. So yes. Oh my God. And so much drunk. I was so drunk. (laughs) Yeah. It's who is a good time. You should uh, join Patreon and listen. And also finally, if you're on Patreon, you get to choose our weekly themes. Be sure to vote. (laughs) Yes. Just vote on it. Yes. um, The museum topic came from our Patreon poll. Yes, and right now there is a uh, a tie. So hopefully somebody will break it. Yes, please. And hopefully for the one I've been rooting for every week that y'all keep not breaking, but no pressure. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But right. yes, we are still running our contest for reviews. If you listen to us, love us, go give us a review and send us a screenshot of it either to our email historicalafpod at gmail.com or on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are historicalafpod. And we will do the drawing for that on July 1st. Is that what we decided? Yeah, July 1st. Yes. Yes. So send us that and 
we will make a little recording of who wins the thing. We've already got quite a few people on our list to draw for, and we're super pumped. Oh, oh. we need listener stories. Listener stories. Yes, if you have a really cool family history that you want to tell us about, if you live in a town that has a cool legend or history, if you have an experience at a historical place, a paranormal experience, or something true crime, please email us at historicalafpod at gmail.com, and we will read them on our Extra AF episode that will start airing the first every month starting in June. Woo! Yes, and we, yeah, so we are just a few days out from having our Extra AF episode, and y'all are going to love it. Really excited. And then a uh, personal social media i am at aj rulo on instagram and librarian underscore af on twitter and i am at k-y-n-a-l-e-a-n-n-e on instagram that's kina leanne my name no big deal and then on twitter i am at pirates plural with not the poor part pirates with that's my name on twitter nice Cool. Cool. So yeah, have a happy week. We love you forever. Don't forget to check out Fangirl Nation magazine. And we will see you next week. Yeah, bye. Bye.